Welcome to the College Connection Podcast, a podcast presented by the College of Registered Nurses of Newfoundland and Labrador. This podcast is a series of regulatory-focused information and education sessions for RNs and NPs. This is the College Connection Podcast. Sean here, and I'm here with Allison. And uh, so I'm going to do parts of this, and Allison is going to do parts, and we're going to sort of probably jump in on, on, on each other's comments a little bit here and there. So I'll just start off uh, by talking a little bit about FIA and uh, you know where it came from, what it's what it's all about. So FIA came into force in 2011. So when we say FIA, we're talking about the Personal Health Information Act. And so it's, it's an act that uh, contains rules for the collection, use, and disclosure of personal health information. So it's, when it first came in, I remember there was, you know, a lot of sort of uh, a flurry of activity among all the different health professions and all the different organizations in the health sector, the RHAs in the department, just sort of getting used to the idea that this law was going to be in place. But once people started getting into it, they, it became clear that really what this act does in large part is it takes a lot of the patient confidentiality practices and requirements and guidelines that were in people's professional, uh, sort of professions, uh, professional guidelines already and put them into a law. Now, the only thing about FIA is it gets more specific than that. So it has some more specific provisions, and we're going to get into that a little bit. And just in terms of like where, where we're at with FIA, um, so as I say, it came into force in 2011. It was passed in 2008. So there was actually three years of sort of getting people prepared who worked in the health sector to, to comply with FIA. But it was based on an older law from Ontario from like the early 2000s. So at this point now, we're dealing with pretty much a 20-year-old law. And as everybody knows who works in the health sector, 20 years ago, there was a heck of a lot more paper uh, being used. And we're, we're very much in the electronic age right now. So what they do in, in government is every so often they, re they review uh, their laws to see if they're up to date enough. And they did a review uh, back in 2016, 2017, and a bunch of recommendations were made. And uh, those recommendations were not yet acted on. Now there's another review happening. And so we put in the chat uh, some, the, uh, a link to where you can, uh, where you can access information about this, the legislative review. So, once you're done this listening to our presentation today, if you have ideas for how the government should change or update the Personal Health Information Act, there's an email address in that second link there that you can you can reach people. So I will pass it over to Allison to, to get started with the rest of the comments. Okay, hello everyone. Um, my name is Allison. I'm one of the analysts here at the office. And uh, we're going to jump into a little bit of the purpose objectives of FIA. So FIA creates the consistent rules for the protection of personal health information in both public and private settings. And it supports transparency and accountability by balancing the protection of an individual's privacy and using personal health information for legitimate health-related purposes. Uh, examples of this are del delivering primary health care, planning and monitoring, of the healthcare system and public health and safety. So the act applies to custodians and custodians are defined in section four. A custodian means a person who has custody or control of personal health information as a result of or in connection with the performance of the person's powers and duties or the work described in that paragraph. For example, Custodians uh, are, uh, can be the Newfoundland Labrador Center for Health Information, can be the regional health authorities. Uh, also, healthcare professionals are custodians. When they're providing healthcare to an individual or performing a function necessary related to the provision of healthcare to the individual. This is slightly different than a healthcare provider 
And a healthcare provider is also custodian under FIA, but this is a person other than a healthcare professional who is paid by MCP, another insurer or person uh, to provide healthcare services to an individual. So a good example of a healthcare provider is a home support agency. And we want to make a note here that uh, some healthcare professionals, uh, the example is social workers, can be custodians themselves or can be employed by a custodian. So in that scenario, uh, figuring out, determining who is the custodian has a large impact on who's accountable uh, for via decisions. And I'll, I'll jump in there a little bit, Allison. Uh, so that, that last example is something that, that might be relevant to some nurses as well. I know a lot of nurses work for the regional health authorities or work for another, for an employer who is a custodian. And so in that case, and we'll get to that in the next slide, I think, uh, the, the nurse is not a custodian themselves. It's their employer who is the custodian. Now, the nurse still needs to be aware of FIA and comply with FIA, whether you work for an, a regional health authority or another employer who's a custodian. You, the, you know, it's still important to be familiar with all the provisions of FIA and to, to follow them. However, uh, there are nurses, I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand that there may be nurses out there who have their own practice of some sort, their own professional private practice of some sort. And in, that, in those cases, uh, a nurse, the nurse would be a custodian. So the nurse would be sort of directly responsible for complying with all the provisions of FIA and making sure that all of the provisions are carried out appropriately. There may be other circumstances where a nurse, uh, for example, might be uh, employed by a company, maybe in an occupational health and safety role. And uh, in that case, usually the employer is not a custodian. So let's say it could be a construction company or something like that. So they would not be a custodian under FIA, but the nurse would be, even though they're an employee. So it does get a little bit tangly there. And for people who have questions about this, about whether they might be a custodian or not a custodian under, under FIA, you can certainly give us a call at the office and we can talk you through it and, and give you some assistance. Okay, great job. Thanks for that uh, further explanation. I think that really helps. Mm -hmm. um, the next slide is who is not a custodian, which uh, we just covered a little bit, but basically, Healthcare professionals who are employed by custodians. So as Sean was explaining, uh, if you are a nurse who is employed by a custodian, a health authority, for example, the nurse themselves would not be a custodian. Uh, but uh, as we noted, uh, or as Sean also mentioned, um, any employees of custodians or agents still have to be aware of their responsibilities under FIA. And ultimately it is the custodian, but uh, who is responsible. However, everyone is, is still accountable for uh, their actions and must comply with the yeah. uh, I'll, I'll throw one more yes. comment in there yeah. too, uh, Allison, which is uh, just, I mean, and I'll, I'll get into this a little bit later in terms of what our office does, the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner. One of the things we do is we investigate complaints. So if someone makes a complaint to us that they think FIA is not being complied with, we can investigate. And when we investigate, one of the things we can do, um, if, if we cannot resolve something informally, we will usually issue a commissioner's report, which is published on our website, and it's available publicly for anyone to, to see. And a, a report that we just issued on Friday is all about uh, a group of psychologists and social workers who were working for a company called Key Assets, and they're, they're a social services organization. And the dispute was between all those health professionals and the company, Key Assets, about which one of them was actually the custodian subject to FIA. And so we did a, an extensive analysis of that in our report, and we recommended that it was actually the health professionals themselves, the psychologists and social workers, who were the custodians. So they get to have custody and control of the health records, but they also have all of the, the responsibilities of holding those records as well. Um, so I don't know if, if there are ever times when uh, registered nurses are, are sort of in this sort of a group practice 
scenario with other health professionals such as psychologists and social workers. But I guess the, the sort of the key learning from that experience from our recent investigation is that it's important to sort out and iron out all the details about who's the custodian and who isn't at the outset of any kind of professional or business arrangement like that so that there's some clarity and, and you don't run into uh, problems later on that, that have to be sorted out by the commissioner. So um, I'll leave it there on that. Sure, and uh, we also put the link to that report in the chat uh, just at the beginning. And it's uh, report uh, PH 2023-001 and the date is March 8, 2023. So it is, uh, it is a good report outlining a lot of the details uh, between uh, Umberfia about custodians and also uh, including some of the contract uh, issues around that as well. Uh, so moving on now, I do have a couple of slides on uh, healthcare and personal health information. Most of that information is in the act and is quite detailed. The, the definitions, you know, have, have a lot of uh, a lot of detail there. So I am just going to run through fairly quickly. Uh, but healthcare is defined under Section 2 in FIA. It means an observation, examination, assessment, care, service, or procedure in relation to an individual that is carried out, provided, or undertaken for one of the following health-related purposes. So that is an important um, word there in the definition, health-related purposes. And it gives you uh, a list there. I'm not going to go through all of them, but uh, I'm, I'm sure many of you uh, you're familiar with already. Moving on to our next slide is uh, personal health information defined. Uh, that's under section five of FIA. And it is important to note that it is uh, oral or recorded form, uh, identifying information in oral or recorded form about an individual that relates to. And again, we have a list. Um, the obvious ones are physical, mental health, family history, different things like that. Another one though that is a little bit different that maybe not everyone will think of right away is uh, the identity of a healthcare provider uh, is also considered personal health information. And uh, some of the other information, uh, registration information, including MCP numbers, identifiers, if that's uh, in related, uh, that information, sorry, is also considered personal health information. And uh, you might not always think of certain aspects of that as being someone's personal health information, if it's an identifier or payment or related to insurance, but it can be. And uh, that's also uh, a good thing to remember there. Let's see what was next. Uh, over that next slide, that wasn't. Uh, so the next one is where does FIA apply? And uh, it applies to custodians of personal health information in public and private sectors in Newfoundland Labrador. Uh, we do have the Access to Information Protection and Privacy Act, a TIPA, for provincial public sector privacy law. And there's also uh, PAPIDA, which is the federal private sector privacy law as well, just to, just to note there. So, uh, Number of sections in the act will go over consent, collection, use, disclosure, and we've listed those sections here, and we're going to touch uh, briefly on a few of them just to give you an idea about some of the uh, some of the important parts. All right, so the collection, use, and disclosure of personal health information. Uh, it's important to remember that. Custodians uh, may not collect, use, or disclose personal health information unless the individual consents or it is permitted uh, or required by the act without consent. Uh, the, other, uh, the other point to make is custodians must not collect, use, or disclose more personal health information than reasonably necessary. So this is the general limiting principle. And uh, basically, it's collect what you need uh, for the purpose, but if you don't need it or it's extra, there really is no reason to collect it in, in that scenario. So it's always important to to obviously get the information you need, but uh, remember that uh, you don't always need all the extra and uh, you don't need to collect it in that scenario. 
Moving on to the consent provision, uh, there are uh, two kinds of consent under FIA, express consent or implied consent. And uh, consent uh, has to be, sorry, one second there. Um, where consent is required, it has to be the consent of the individual the information is about. So whoever's personal health information uh, is at issue, it has to be that person who is consenting. Uh, the knowledgeable aspect means uh, the person must know the identified purpose. They know they can say no, and they know the Personal Health Information Act will be followed. And the information cannot be obtained through deception or coercion. As well, the circle of, within a circle of care, a custodian is entitled to assume that they have the individual's continuing implied consent as long as they are providing health care to that individually, sorry, to the individual, unless specifically withdrawn. And uh, I think, uh, Sean, you yeah. see that come up a fair bit, where there are a number of different custodians, uh, a number of different professionals who are helping an individual, uh, and in that situation, uh, the consent uh, is something that can be applied uh, throughout that circle of care. Yeah, so Allison's going to explain further about express consent versus implied consent in the next slides, but uh, this circle of care concept is important because a lot of, a lot of things in the healthcare system function through implied consent. So, for example, if, if someone is getting treatment in a healthcare facility and the doctor orders uh, some lab tests, well, obviously that person's, uh, you know, uh, tests, lab, you know, lab work has got to be done by a lab tech or, or whoever else is involved in that process. So, you know, a nurse may be involved in drawing blood or what have you. So all the people that are sort of necessary to that, that process uh, are part of the implied consent. They're part of the circle of care. So while that treatment is ongoing. But uh, so, but, you know, and just sort of to explain the other side of it or the limits of that, let's say that you're an emergency room nurse and you're taking care of somebody who has come in and you're, you're assisting with their care in the emergency department. And then they get, they get admitted and they get uh, sent somewhere else in the hospital and they're in uh, a doctor's care and nurses in that part of the hospital have taken over that person's care. So you are no longer in that person's circle of care anymore. You cannot assume that you have any implied consent to do anything with their information. You can't look up their information on your system, anything like that. So you're, you're out of the loop at that point. Uh, unless, for example, unless they come back into emergency a, a week later, then while they're there and you're helping them and you're in the, if you're an emergency room nurse, then you are, uh, you're in their circle of care again for that purpose for that period of time. Okay, uh, the next slide um, just gives a brief uh, description of express consent, that it's uh, an individual positively indicating verbally or writing that they agree to the stated purpose of the collection. Uh, under FIA, the, uh, the consent must be expressed, but not be implied when a custodian discloses to another custodian and providing health care. So in that situation, uh, it has it, it, it's outside the healthcare realm, and there has to be express consent for that purpose. Um, the other area where express consent is needed is when a custodian discloses to a non-custodian for a purpose other than providing healthcare. So it all comes back to healthcare, um, but also when there's a disclosure outside of of uh, the need, then the custodian needs to express consent. Uh, there are exceptions set up in the act where uh, no consent is required and uh, they can be reviewed uh, at your leisure. I, I can give you an example of that. Uh, so let's yeah. say there's, so there's, there's something called the cancer care registry. So that, uh, you know, researchers can uh, access information about cancer patients in this province and you know, do work to try to improve cancer treatment in the future. And so that cancer care registry is uh, a registry that has been approved by the provincial government and set out in regulations as a, a special sort of type of, uh, of, of uh, database. And 
So anyone who has undergoes cancer, cancer treatment in this province, their information is going to be retained in the cancer care registry where it is protected and kept secure. And they do an assessment of it to make sure that it can't be accessed by anyone who has no business to access it and is not using it for a purpose for which it's intended. So that's an example of where there are provisions in the act for disclosing personal health information with, without consent, but those are very specific and limited. Next slide just goes over implied consent, uh, and we already talked a little bit about that with the social care, but uh, pretty much implied consent is just inferring uh, a consent. And uh, this can be uh, withdrawn uh, by an individual, but they have to expressly withdraw it. And uh, they still have to be notified of uh, the collection and intended uses and disposals of their personal health information, even if it is an implied consent. So they're still, uh, they still have to know uh, what they're consenting to. The next slide is just is about maintaining disclosure information. And this is when, if a custodian has to disclose information, um, it is, these are requirements under the act that uh, certain information should be kept. The name of the person to whom the custodian is disclosing the information, the date and purpose of the disclosure, and then just a description of the information disclosed. Uh, ideally, uh, even though the act says a description of the information disclosed, it still would be very helpful to keep uh, a copy of the information that's being disclosed for records uh, so that uh, custodian is aware exactly what was provided, but a uh, description is what's listed on the act. Uh, and also, we want to note here that. Uh, a lot of the times uh, when there is uh, information being provided or disclosed, if it's in an electronic uh, system, then that system would keep a copy or log of what information is being disclosed uh, and to who. Uh, still, for the purpose, that's still something that should be uh, kept. And also, uh, we wanted to note that this is why one of the, uh, the audit auditing is a key consideration for the electronic system in healthcare. Uh, and I think uh, Sean's going to be talking a little bit more about that in the uh, in the upcoming slides when we talk about security obligations and uh, some of the hurdles uh, with that. I think that's it for the next section is research, but that was only a brief. Uh, just want to let you know that there is a section there on research under FIA in section forty four. You can take a read of that. All right, security obligations okay. is where Sean is going to take over. All right. I want you to sure. Keep yep. 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 So, uh, one of the important things, of course, we're talking about the Personal Health Information Act. And one of the most important things about the act is that the, it creates an obligation on custodians, but everyone in the healthcare system, to keep information secure. So keeping personal health information of citizens secure. And the act, and, and as I mentioned at the outset, you know, these are these are sort of considered to be sort of the, some of the professional obligations of everybody in the healthcare system all along. But now we've got this act, the Personal Health Information Act, that that requires it by law. So under the act, custodians have to take steps that are and this is the words in the act, reasonable in the circumstances to ensure that personal health information is protected against theft, loss, and unauthorized access, use, or disclosure. So not only theft or loss or, you know, from someone from outside the organization, but also unauthorized access, use, or disclosure. And that even could be within the organization, or it could be, as in the case of the, the big cyber attack we heard all about uh, last year, it could even be from an outside entity, a hacker. And in fact, the Minister of Justice has just done a news conference earlier this afternoon in which he revealed that the cyber attack was actually a ransomware attack by an internationally active uh, organization. Uh, and uh, so he clarified that uh, uh, 
you know, that information is, can just be released now because that particular uh, criminal organization has been uh, put out of business. Um, but they're, they're kind of like whack-a-mole. There's going to be another one. You know, there, there are many of them out there and there'll be another one to replace that, you know, right away. So it's something we all have to guard against. Um, records also must be protected against unauthorized copying or modification. So you can't just duplicate a re records and, and keep them lying around because that's a security risk as well. Um, and modification of health records uh, without authorization is also problematic because of course it's, it's important that our personal health information is accurate. And that's actually one of the requirements of FIA is, uh, is accuracy. And I'll get into that in a little while. Um, Custodians also have to make sure that their health records are retained, transferred, and disposed of in a secure manner. And that comes up a surprising amount. You, would, you, would, uh, you, you might be surprised to learn. I don't know. But transferred securely means things like faxes and emails and things like that. So it's important that custodians have good policies in place to ensure that when they are transferring uh, personal health information from one person to another, even if it's to another custodian, uh, they have to make sure that they have a secure method of doing so. And disposing of records in a secure manner is also really important and also comes up a lot. So there have been lots of situations over the years where uh, a medical office, someone is sort of retiring from practice and they fail to to properly transfer those records to somebody to somebody else who's authorized to have them, like another custodian, or even if they intend to this to just get rid of them, they fail to 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 sort of shred them or destroy them appropriately. And there have been many cases across the country where medical records have been found abandoned in office buildings and things like that. And those are certain situations where the Information and Privacy Commissioner from whatever jurisdiction that it's in will, you know, arrive on the scene and, and, and investigate and determine, you know, who left those records there and whose responsibility it is. And uh, so that's very important to dispose of records in a secure manner as well if they are being disposed of. Custodians also have to notify individuals if their personal health information is lost, stolen, disposed of, or disclosed in an unauthorized manner. Unless there can be, it can, it's assessed that there will be no adverse impact on their healthcare or well being. So that would be the minority of circumstances. In most times, if personal health information is lost, stolen, disposed of, or disclosed in an unauthorized manner, you have to notify the affected individual. So that's a custodian's duty. So if you are an employee of a custodian, let's say that you are uh, a nurse working for a regional health authority, if you know of some personal health information that has been lost, stolen, disposed of, or disclosed improperly, you need to report that up the chain through supervisors and management so that they know about it and they can take appropriate steps to notify affected individuals. And, and in some cases, they may be able to get the information back or prevent the breach from getting worse or what have you. Custodians also need to notify our office, the Information and Privacy Commissioner's office, uh, under certain conditions. Basically, it's the access when it's a material privacy breach. A material breach is basically just a sort of a legal term for a significant breach. So usually that's a situation where a lot of people have been affected, or even if a, one or a small number of people have been affected, the information is highly sensitive. So it's something that if the information got out there in the public or the wrong people access it, it would be very certainly damaging or harmful to the individual who the information is about. So I'm going to move on and talk about some specific security safeguards that custodians are expected to have in place. So there's three different categories of safeguards, physical, physical administrative, and technical. So physical, it's basically like, you know, if you have personal, if you if you have personal health information, then, you know, if it's in paper form, you know, it should be in a locked cabinet, you know, stored behind a locked door with limited access. Um, and it, even if it's electronic, it's on computers, you know, it should be that those, those computer terminals should be in an area where uh, 
um, there's limited access only by authorized individuals. So you shouldn't be able to have members of the public walking by, looking over your shoulder and seeing what's on your computer screen. That would not be good physical security. Um, administrative security. So some, you may be familiar with some of these things, requiring employees and agents to sign confidentiality agreements. So all of you who are listening to this, uh, this presentation right now, if you have access to personal health information in your work, you're involved in treating patients, anything like that, or processing information about health treatment, you should have signed an oath of confidentiality. Uh, your employer should have required you to sign that. If you are self-employed, um, if you are uh, sort of in a sole practice type of nursing role, uh, you should still uh, ensure that you have an oath of confidentiality signed. And examples of those oaths are available on the Department of Health and Community Services website, which we list at the end of this presentation. Um, custodians are also requ require agents and employees to attend privacy and security training. So this is something that you, your employer should also be doing is sending information to you about privacy protection to uh, in, ensure that you are aware of your requirements under the, under the act. And, uh, you know, attending a presentation like this is, is certainly part of that, I think. But you also need to be trained in the particular privacy and security practices and policies of your employer. Um, other administrative safeguards, developing, monitoring, and enforcing privacy and security policies. So that's the, that's the custodian's responsibility. Conducting privacy impact assessments on information systems, technologies, or programs that involve personal health information. So a privacy impact assessment is basically just looking at a new technology or process and doing an assessment on it to see whether uh, this technology or this process is does it pose any privacy risks? Um, it, does it put personal health information at risk of inappropriate disclosure or access? And if it does, what mitigations can be put in place to prevent that from, from uh, anything wrong from happening there? The third type of safeguard is technical safeguards. So we're talking about authentication measures, encryption where appropriate. And the other thing that, that uh, uh, tech that would fall under technical safeguards is an audit or audit monitoring system. So basically, whenever you're accessing a, an electronic record system, the system typically, certainly any modern system of these days, unless it's a really old one and, and kind of out of date, but any modern, modern electronic system these days would log your access. So if you are accessing personal health information, it should log uh, what time and, and who, like that, you know, using your identification from when you logged into the computer, it should be able to tell who accessed the information, when they accessed it, what specific pages or fields that, that were accessed, things of that nature. And that's important uh, because there are cir circumstances where People access personal health information for their own personal reasons, for inappropriate reasons, and for reasons that can be harmful to the individual that, and it's not connected to their, their, their care or treatment at all. And so those are kind of what we would call snooping episodes. And having an auditing system in your uh, electronic record system helps to sort of weed out those, those situations when they occur and can also help your employer and potentially our office uh, deal with those if, if we need a, to do an investigation. So move to the next slide now. Um, and, and I know some of you may have questions and we'll get to those at the end. The next one is about access and correction. So most of what I've talked about so far is, is about the privacy side of the Personal Health Information Act. So, it, you know, making sure that information is collected appropriately with implied or expressed consent and that uh, it's, uh, you know, that it's kept safe and secure and all those things. But the Personal Health Information Act, FIA also grants a right of access and a right of correction. So 
a right of access basically is that it, it, they have a right of access to their own personal health information. So if someone has received any kind of healthcare treatment from a custodian that is subject to the Personal Health Information Act, they have a right to request any records of that treatment from the custodian. There are very limited exceptions to that right. Um, and so if, there was, if there's gonna be harm to the individual or another person from, from providing it, or if there's a legal investigation underway, uh, things of that nature. But the, the, those exceptions are, are very specific and limited and they, they are outlined in the act. So if you are a custodian or if uh, you're being consulted by a custodian about looking for health records and things of that nature, bear in mind that this is a, a pretty broad right that exists under the statute. And the Personal Health Information Act identifies the process and the timelines for how that access to information process should happen. There's also a process for uh, making a correction request. So let's say somebody has been getting healthcare from a custodian and the custodian says, we'll give you a bit of a cartoon example, I guess. Hopefully it doesn't happen too often. The custodian says, well, you're here for your surgery today, Mrs. Smith. I understand you need to get your left arm amputated. And Mrs. Smith says, now, hold on, it's my right arm that I'm getting amputated. Do not amputate my left arm. So Ms. Mrs. Smith had better get her records corrected if, the, if the, uh, the surgeon is prepared to amputate the wrong arm. Maybe there's an error in her health records. And she has a right to make uh, the custodian correct that record and make sure she gets the right treatment in the future going forward. Now, what you can't correct you can't correct like a professional opinion. So if a physician or a nurse makes a note on a chart about their assessment of a patient, you know, a patient seems upset or something like that, you know, that's not something that can be correct, corrected. That is the healthcare professional's opinion that they've noted on the chart. And even if the, the person disagrees with it, the most that they can do is they can ask that the record be annotated. Basically a note added saying that the patient disagrees, the patient thinks they weren't upset. But they cannot make you change your sort of professional opinion that you may have noted in a record. Um, so, and, and the correction process, the whole process of requesting a correction, that's all outlined in FIA as well. The next slide we'll go to is about the Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner. So that's the office that Allison and I work for. And so we are the entity that is, has been given the role of ensuring that custodians comply with the Personal Health Information Act. And we are also the entity that is responsible for compliance with the Access to Information and Protection of Privacy Act, the ATIPA, which is the privacy and access to information law that government and municipalities and stuff like that, that, that they're all accountable for. Um, but, but today we're talking about FIA. And uh, so some of the things that we do as overseeing compliance with this act is we can investigate a complaint. So I mentioned earlier that someone can file a complaint. Well, they can file complaints about if they make an access request for their personal health information and they feel like they didn't get all the information they're entitled to, or maybe they didn't even get a response. Maybe they just didn't get it. Uh, then they can come to our office and make a complaint and we'll look into it and make sure that they get whatever information they're entitled to under the law. We also get complaints about correction. Someone thinks that they, that their personal health information should have been corrected and it wasn't. And we'll look into that and we'll investigate. And we also get complaints, probably the most common one about privacy breaches. So I'll get, we'll talk about privacy breaches a little bit more shortly. Um, we can also inform the public about the act. So we have a commissioner, the, uh, the Michael Harvey is the current commissioner. So you may see him in the news sometimes commenting on privacy breaches or about, you know, anything to do with privacy, uh, in sort of in, that's happening, any discussions that are happening in the public realm that people should, you may be interested in. And as any of you, all of you probably know, it seems like these days, whenever you, uh, look at look at the news at all. Uh, there's always something about privacy happening in the news these days. And given that we 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 live in an era now where everybody has cell phones, 
and there's so much information flying around and, and our phones are collecting so much information about us and we're everywhere we go, there's surveillance cameras and, you know, there's, there's information being collected about us in so many different ways, some, sometimes appropriately and legally, sometimes maybe not. And so the commissioner is here to be able to not only do all the things under fiat, but also to sort of participate in and lead that public discourse about, you know, what are, what are our privacy rights or what they should be as citizens in the province. So there are times, however, that it can get, that privacy matters can go beyond the commissioner's office. So it's possible under the act that if an individual has a complaint about access to personal health information or correction of their personal health information, they can actually go, go to court. Uh, they can go to court directly and just skip going to the commissioner altogether. Or if, if, we, if they come to us first and we do an investigation, if they're still not satisfied, or if the custodian doesn't follow our recommendations, they can go to court after that. So I'll move on to the next page now. And this is something that, this is sort of like a one pager. If someone ever says to us, okay, just, you know, this is a long presentation. Can you give me sort of a one pager uh, bullet point about all the things that a custodian of personal health information under FIA is required to do? Well, here's the one pager. So uh, these are the, you know, there's more requirements in the act, but these are sort of the, the top the top ones. I don't know if there's 10 there, if there's the 10 or 11 or so. So number one, a contact person must be designated. That's really important so that if someone comes to a custodian and says, I want to make a request for access, they just can't approach a random person in a hallway in Eastern Health. You know, they have, there has to be some way for them to know, okay, is there an office within Eastern Health for me to make this a request for my own personal health information? And, you know, it would be good for you folks to know the answer to that question in case you get that, that question answered, asked to you. And there is such an office. This is something that I think your training should tell you if you work for a regional health authority or any other custodian. You should know who the contact person is within your organization for questions about FIA, whether it's access to information, uh, correction of information, or someone wishing to report or discuss a privacy breach. So if you don't know the answer to that, you should find out when you get back to work. Who is our contact person for FIA? Who is, where is our, that office? The other thing is confidentiality agreements for all employees, agents, contractors, or volunteers. As I mentioned earlier, everyone on this call should have signed a confidentiality agreement, uh, making it clear that they are aware of their obligations under FIA and that they're going to keep personal health information uh, confidential. There's also um, agreements with information managers. So let's say that your, that your employer um, uses uh, an outside third party to, do, to take care of its information management, information technology. That entity is probably considered to be an information manager under FIA and there has to be an agreement in place spelling out the various roles and, and responsibilities that the two of them would have. Next, they have to have, any custodian has to have detailed privacy and security policies and procedures. So you have to know uh, what information you have and you have to know what you're doing to keep it, keep it uh, safe from, from inappropriate disclosure. Uh, you have to train your employees. Uh, so if you have privacy and security policies, you have to tell your employees about those. So that's something you should expect. As an employee, you should expect to receive training from your employer. If your employer is a custodian, you should expect to, to receive training from your employer about privacy and security and the policies and procedures relating to those within your organization. Your organization should also have a written statement of information practices available to the public. Generally speaking, uh, how do they handle personal health information and what do they do with it? And they should also provide notices for explaining the purposes for which personal health information is collected, used, and disclosed. And so those, you sometimes see those things, things like that on posters uh, in a doctor's office wall or uh, in an elevator or somewhere like that in, in, the, in, the, uh, uh, in, in a healthcare professional's office. 
and providing or providing that information to clients in the form of a pamphlet or something like that. If you're going to go see maybe a massage therapist, they should have a pamphlet saying, you know, we collect your personal health information for this reason and we keep it for this reason and this is what we do with it. Um, custodians are also required to record or log disclosures of personal health information. Now, if you work for a custodian that has an electronic uh, medical record system, those disclosures, if there are any disclosures from that system, those disclosures should be logged automatically. But if, you're, if they're not, and you're, we're talking about sort of faxing something to another, uh, to, to another healthcare professional or some other third party, really there should be a log retained. You should note in the person's record somewhere who that information was disclosed to for what purpose and the date. Uh, there's also, there, custodians should also have a process for managing what's called limited consent. So there are circumstances where, let's say uh, somebody is coming to see treatment, so some coming to seek treatment at a regional health authority facility, and they say, look, my ex-spouse works here. They work down the hall, and you know we have a very acrimonious relationship and I don't want any contact with this person. And I don't want them to have access to my personal health information. So you have to have a process in place if you're a custodian to make sure that that person uh, will not be able to access the patient's information. That's called limited, uh, limited consent, and it is one of the provisions of FIA. Finally, a custodian should have a privacy breach management protocol. Basically, you know, if a big privacy breach happens, you can't have any, everyone running around like chickens with their heads cut off. You know, there's got to be a plan about, okay, what is the first step we do when we have a privacy breach? First thing you should do is stop the breach. If there's an ongoing breach, um, then like, for example, if, if you've discovered that your, uh, your website is, has published all kinds of personal health information uh, inappropriately, first thing you want to do is shut down that website, uh, shut down that page, take that page offline. So stop the breach, contain it. So there, that's an example, but your, a privacy breach man management protocol would have step-by-step -step process for what to do in the case of a privacy breach. So I'm going to, I'm going to talk about a little bit more about breaches now briefly. So uh, as, as we mentioned earlier, um, so there's these, this is, these are the considerations for reporting a material breach to the commissioner's office. Um, I'll skip to the next slide. Um, so uh, this is uh, about notifying affected uh, individuals, notifying the individual. So as we mentioned earlier, um, you, you know, in most cases you have to notify someone when there's been a breach. And we'll skip to the next slide. And so this is about intentional violations of privacy. So sometimes people get, when, when there's been a, a privacy breach, uh, you know, that they've maybe committed or someone working with them or someone in their organization, people get very stressed about that. And, you know, it is stressful, understandably. And you do need to make sure you handle that situation as best you can. And we're here to provide advice if, if you don't have anyone to, to assist you. But... Um, you know, there are also circumstances where um, people make, not only don't, you know, making a mistake is one thing, and you, you don't really get in a lot of trouble for making a mistake. The idea is that we learn from our mistakes and we prevent those things from happening again. But there are situations where there are, are intentional privacy breaches, and there is a specific provision in FIA about that, and you can actually be prosecuted in court if you sort of intentionally go and, and, and word in the act, willful privacy breach, as you can be fined. I mean, I think jail time would be unlikely, but people do get convicted and do face fines. And in those cases, often will lose their jobs as well. Um, that's typically the typical outcome. So we'll just flip to the next slide, just to give you one example. And I threw this, this example in here, it's because it's the only example so far of a nurse in Newfoundland and Labrador being prosecuted. So in October 2014, a, a registered nurse employed by Eastern Health 
was sentenced to a fine of a thousand dollars after which is you know oh that's not too bad but she lost her job and she had to go to court and you know be up on a on, on a stand in, in court and, and go through that whole process which is highly unpleasant so this this has happened there, there's been other prosecutions of other other types of individuals healthcare providers and such within the healthcare system uh, but this was the only prosecution of a nurse and they don't happen every day, um, but there have been several in this province. And what happens in that case is when a complaint comes to our office, we investigate. And at a certain point in the investigation, we may you know, come to the conclusion that this looks like an intentional breach. And then we will sort of, uh, we will sort of put that investigation in sort of a special category here. And we carry out our investigation and collect evidence so that the evidence can be used in a court of law. And when we're ready to, to proceed with it, when we think we've got the investigation done, we meet with the Attorney General's uh, Director of Public Prosecutions, and we say, look, we think this is a serious matter, and we think we, should lay, we would like to lay a charge, and we consult with the Attorney General. If the Attorney General says, yep, if you lay a charge, we will prosecute it. Then the commissioner goes down to the courthouse and lays a charge, and the prosecution takes place. And that's what happened in that case. So it can happen. It sh it's not something you should be worried about if there's been an accidental breach. But if you have been involved in a serious uh, intentional privacy breach, then this is a possible outcome. And now I'll skip to the next slide. Uh, so we've just listed some resources from the Department of Health and Community Services. And then the uh, the other the next slide for us is uh, OIPC's uh, resources on our website. And if anyone uh, thinks of a question later, that's our contact information there. You can look it up, look us up online too. Certainly, feel free to reach out to me or Alice, and we'd be happy to talk to you. This has been a presentation of the College of Registered Nurses of Newfoundland and Labrador.